we're going to take this summer and learn about discipleship from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Now, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount are found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. There's another kind of version, an account of it in Luke chapter 6. We're going to focus on Matthew's version of it this summer. And there's a lot of practical reasons for doing it. Let me just share a couple of different things. People in our culture, in our world, in our society, almost universally have heard of phrases. Whether they know Christ or not, people have heard of phrases like, do unto others. You could say that in the world, and people will be familiar with that. People use the phrase, salt of the earth. Almost everybody uses the phrase, do not judge. How many times do we get taught, well, don't judge, do not Do you know every one of those phrases come out of the Sermon on the Mount? How familiar are we with the Lord's Prayer? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That comes out of the Sermon on the Mount. One commentator I read preparing for this said, Society respects things like sincerity and integrity. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Beware of practicing your righteousness before men. Beware of doing it to show off, to have an audience. Society is skeptical of things like materialism. It's in the Sermon on the Mount that it says, don't be greedy. Don't treat money as a god. Society dislikes a judgmental spirit. And Jesus says, do not judge. Also, I want you to think of some of the practical relevance. Issues that strike us. Issues that are important to us as disciples. Jesus tackles issues like how to live the Christian life in a pluralistic world. When we learn things like being the salt of the earth and the light of the world, he says, a city on a hill. That's what he's calling the church, the community of God. He's saying, you're a city on a hill. It can't be hidden. What does that look like in the midst of a fallen, pluralistic world? He speaks of the nature of Christian character. When we begin next week and start studying the Beatitudes, the nature of what Jesus calls true happiness, the values that Jesus values are not the things the world values. They're not power. They're not ambition. They're things like humility, hungering and thirsting after justice, offering mercy, being a peacemaker. The sermon tackles issues like practical issues, the place of the law in the Christian's life, dealing with money, dealing with anxiety. Anybody ever struggle with worry and anxiety? I'm the only one? Okay, the sermon appeals to me then. We'll go from there. I don't think I'm the only one who struggles with anxiety, but the Sermon on the Mount deals with that. Prayer. How about forgiving and loving your enemies? All of these issues are tackled in these three chapters. The title of the Sermon on the Mount, what we use, what there are scores of commentators and commentaries on, first came to be used in the writings of the theologian of North Africa, Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo, who lived in the 4th and the beginning of the 5th centuries. And he called the sermon the perfect standard of the Christian life. Immediately when you think about that, you kind of have an issue of how do we read the sermon? Is it meant to simply drive us to guilt? What's well, a standard? And if we're expected to keep it, oh my goodness. If we're at all an honest person, we're going to realize we fall way short of the standard. So maybe, as some theologians say, maybe it's just meant to be a pointer. One of the theologians say there's usually three uses of the law, and the second place of the law is that it, it shows us your sin so that it drives us for our need for grace, and that's certainly in the sermon. There's no question that's one of the uses. 
But do you think Jesus really intended to preach this sermon with that being the only use? And he didn't intend for there to be real life application to make a real life difference in how you lived? So although the ser- so how do we read the Sermon on the Mount? Although it sets forth a standard, a standard that we certainly, I'm going to say at the outset, we do not, we cannot reach and we cannot keep perfect perfectly it's not meant to lead us to despair it's not meant to lead us to guilt it's not meant to lead us to hopelessness but as Sinclair Ferguson put it he said the sermon is not aiming it's not its intention to produce a sense of hopelessness and despair in us rather it is intended to set before us a glorious vision of what the Lord means for us to become you hear that Jesus is giving us a vision of life in his kingdom. Sinclair Ferguson calls it Jesus' manifesto. It describes a regal lifestyle, the new behavior pattern for the new kingdom we have already entered. And this is very important. In other words, the sermon is written not to say, do this, do that, in order to enter the kingdom. But it's written, in other words, the audience is to those who already belong to the kingdom. When I read the text in just a minute, and we're going to look at the context of this, verses 1 and 2, it says that Jesus is setting himself apart. He's pulling away. He's going up on the mountainside to teach his disciples. This is a manifesto for discipleship. This is a manual for discipleship. Jesus is speaking to his discipleship, and he's giving a glorious vision for the Christian life, and he's saying the Christian life is the kingdom life. It is written for those who belong to the kingdom. And to belong to the kingdom is to have Jesus as your king. So I want to ask you a question, even before we read the text. And right at the outset, have you settled that issue of Jesus being your king for yourself? Is Jesus the Lord, the king of your life? Have you surrendered your life to him? Because you cannot have Jesus as Savior, and not have him as Lord and King. I just want you to think about the nature of faith. You're putting your faith in a person. You're putting your faith in Jesus Christ, and Jesus cannot be divided in two. Jesus is, all the time, Savior, Deliverer, Champion, Lord, and King. And the Sermon on the Mount is all about Jesus. It is all about Jesus, who he is, what his character is like, what he does, what is his work for us. And he's setting before us a glorious vision. Part of what I want you to be fully persuaded is to capture this vision for the Christian life. Because this is a very surprising vision. Sometimes I think we think of the vision for the Christian life and we think of it only in terms of things like reading our Bible and prayer and tithing and evangelism and being a part of the church. And all those things, they're not just important, they're vital. But Jesus is going to give you a vision of the Christian life that is all about what it means to, in the words of John Stott, and I'll quote this again a little later, what it means to be a counterculture. I was reading one kind of thing online just preparing for this. One preacher titled his sermon series on this, and I thought, ooh, this is stealable, but I'm not stealing it. I'm not, internet, I'm not stealing this. You've got to be very careful in this day and age. But I don't even know who this preacher was but he called his sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount flipped. And I like that because Jesus is turning upside down 
all the things we typically value. And he is persuading us this is life in the kingdom. The world values power. The world values success. Jesus is going to say things like, blessed are those who are persecuted on my account. Blessed are those who are falsely accused when people revile you. How's that for a goal for your life? Should I have prayed over the graduates and said, I pray for them to be reviled? Tyler, what do you think of that as a prayer? Would that? Oh, he's, he's going for it. He's fully persuaded. I like that. Okay. But this is the vision Jesus is giving us for the Christian life. Now, this morning, all we want to do is introduce this sermon to you. We're going to introduce this. what we're going to come back to over the coming weeks. So I want you to turn with me if you have Bibles or Christine's going to shine the words up. on. I love that. As soon as I say Christine, they're right up there. Matthew chapter 5, I'm going to focus on verses 1 and 2, but I want to read the context, which is verses 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught to them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice! And be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And friends, this is the word of God. Let me ask a a question of this text, and this is the way we're going to work our way through this. What is a disciple? I said this is spoke to disciples who belong already to the kingdom. Disciple is a learner, a student, a pupil of Jesus who's constantly growing, we're going to say in three things. Seeing Jesus savoring Jesus, and grow and showing Jesus. In other words, the Sermon on the Mount, very practically and in a very relevant manner, tells us what it looks like to see Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount tells us what it, likes, what it looks like to savor Jesus. And the Sermon on the Mount tells us what it, what it looks like to show Jesus. The introduction to the sermon is found in verses 1 and 2, where it says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. So notice Jesus is teaching. The crowds were around him. Why? Because he was healing, he was preaching, he was teaching. Earlier in chapter 4, it told us this. So Jesus did what he often did. He withdrew. He took. He wanted a time of instruction with his followers, those who were going to basically carry on the movement he knew when he would be leaving the earth. So he's beginning to instruct them. And he's describing them the glorious vision of the lifestyle of the kingdom of God. The Sermon on the Mount is the description of the lifestyle of those who belong to the kingdom of God. So right off the bat, we have to ask ourselves the question, what is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is the rule or reign of God. It is the expression of God's gracious, sovereign will. So to belong to the kingdom of God, then, is to belong to the community, to the family, to the people among whom the reign of God has already begun. Listen to how Tim Keller put it. I think there is no better definition and description of the kingdom. He says, the gospel tells us that Jesus came to usher in 
the kingdom of God. God's kingdom is his rule, his reign, his power. When anything, any life is brought back under Christ's rule, it is progressively being restored to health, wholeness, beauty, freedom, coherence, order. In other words, God created the world to be managed by him. God created the world to be ruled by him, to be under his rule. That means you will only be satisfied. You'll only flourish. You will only be full under the rule of Jesus Christ. Things blossom and find fulfillment, Dr. Keller says, only under his rule. Where things are now is all areas of life are subject to falling apart, incohering, disintegration, when they're not under the kingship of Christ. And Dr. Keller writes, the plan of God is to unite the disintegrating life of the world with the life of heaven by bringing all things under the kingship of Christ. So the kingdom of God and the Sermon on the Mount is describing what it looks like, the vision of life in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the renewal of the whole world through the entrance of supernatural forces. Now, look at Matthew's gospel. Let's understand a little context as we work our way through this. Okay? We read it and we sit there and say, Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5. Remember, original, right, original scripture, no chapter divisions. You read it, you hear it all, either one sitting, but it's not divided up the way we have it now in the sense of chapter and verse and stuff. So immediate, you've got to look at the immediate context. And so, for example, in chapter 4, verse 17... Matthew writes, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. See, Jesus is coming. What is at the heart of the gospel? The fact that Jesus is ushering in, he's inaugurating, he is bringing the kingdom, the rule and reign of God. The gospel is the good news of the kingdom. Matthew then gives kind of a summary statement. He gives these various summary statements throughout his gospel. Verse 23, when he says, And Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount describes exactly what that looks like. Now, it's very interesting. Matthew has kind of a rhetorical device for working through this, and it's found in verse 17, where he uses the phrase, from that time. He says, from that time, and that acts like headings to divide the gospel of Matthew. It's kind of the main divisions of Matthew's gospel. So, for example, in chapter 4, verse 17, he says, from that time, the time he's referring to is the arrest and the imprisonment of John the Baptist. He said that in verse 12 of chapter 4. And then in verse 17, he says, oh, from that time, meaning one division of Matthew's gospel is 1-1 to 4-16. Then the next division is going to start at 417, and it's going to work all the way through till he's going to say again at chapter 16, verse 21, from that time. And the time is the time of Peter's confession of Christ. So you have another main division that works from 421 to 1620. And then 16 to 21 to 2820 is the end. Now, all of these things are about Jesus. The beginning, chapters 1 to 4, is talking about the identity of Jesus. You work through his birth narratives, his baptism, his being thrust out into the wilderness. Then when we move into 417 to 1620, you have what? Jesus' teaching, preaching, and healing. It's his work and his action, culminating in that confession Peter makes that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. 
So it's his kingly authority set before us. And then 16, 21 to 28 to 20 says exactly what kind of king this is. And what an upside down surprising king this is. Because this is a king who instead of riding in like we would expect him to take over, defeat the enemies, powerful. What does he do? He dies on a cross. He ushers into his, his kingdom through weakness, through suffering. He is a suffering king. And the whole context of the whole of Matthew's gospel, we discover the chief theme is Jesus himself. So what do we expect when we get to the Sermon on the Mount? To see Jesus is to see his kingdom. You can't have one without the other. And the Sermon on the Mount is all about seeing Jesus. The disciples are always seeking and seeing Jesus. Do you read the Bible to see Jesus, or do you read the Bible for just information? Do you, see the, do you read the Bible? Do you pray? Do you come to church? Because you want to follow hard. You want to seek. You want to learn. You want to be captured by seeing Jesus. That's our first point. And the second point, those who see Jesus also savor Jesus. Look with me again at verse 1. When he says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. Now, this is extremely significant because I want you to recognize what Matthew's readers would be thinking about, what this is alluding to. What does the mountain remind us of? You've got to recognize and commentators remind us that Jesus emerges out of a history. And that history is the history of Israel. And the main story, the main paradigm for salvation, for deliverance. There's a lot more. I'm simplifying this, I know. But there's a, in the history of Israel is the exodus. The exodus is the paradigm for what it means to be delivered. Delivered from Egypt, delivered from slavery, delivered and brought into the freedom, brought into covenant relationship with God. So the exodus in the Old Testament, and where did God speak to the Israelites in the Old Testament? From Mount Sinai. Through what? Through his mediator, through his chosen vessel, through his prophet, Moses. Now, one difference here. So we already have Jesus being presented as a new Moses figure. He's presenting the people of God as undergoing a new exodus. Jesus is fitting completely the profile of a prophet. He is fulfilling, fulfilling and embodying the teachings, the writings, the promises. And when you get to his death, even the curses of the Old Testament. And one writer, a man by the name of Scott McKnight, he reminds us here of an astounding feature. That in the Old Testament, did, God did what? He spoke through the prophets. He spoke through Moses, you get here, and so the prophets of the Old Testament would often say what? To introduce things. They would say, thus saith the Lord. Take a look at Matthew 5 through 7. What's missing? It doesn't say, thus saith the Lord. Jesus is the voice of God. God is not just speaking through Jesus. Jesus is God. The voice of God is speaking. You want to talk about an authoritative voice? And as we look through, Matthew's been making this connection between Jesus and Moses and how Jesus is bringing a new exodus, which do you know what that makes us? That makes us new exodus people. Moses did what? He sat on the mountain. He descended from the mountain. He gave Israel the law. Jesus does the same thing. What else do we learn? Both Moses and Jesus went down into Egypt. 
were delivered. Both Moses and Jesus were threatened by a chief enemy, Pharaoh and Herod. Both Moses and Jesus led their people through water. Moses through the Red Sea. Do you ever wonder why Jesus was baptized and why he said he had to fulfill? Here's a sinless person saying he had to fulfill all righteousness. He is being the embodiment of all. Do you know why Paul says all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ? Jesus is bringing not just the curse of the covenant. He is fulfilling everything. So he went through the water. He was baptized. He went through his own Red Sea experience. And then what happened to Moses after he led the people? Moses led the people where? Through the wilderness. Jesus is led and thrust out, driven out. Matthew chapter 4 tells us what? Into the wilderness. Jesus is the new and greater Moses who's leading a new exodus, making us new exodus people. And what is the only proper response now to the fulfillment of all these promises, to this new and greater Moses? It is to savor Jesus. Our only proper response is to assume the posture of a disciple, to learn from him, to serve him, to love him, to worship him, and to listen to him. Think of, again, something to remind us of the Exodus. Matthew 17, when Jesus is transfigured on the mount, he brings Peter, James, and John with him, and they see Moses and Elijah on the mount. What does the voice from heaven say? This is my beloved son whom I love. Listen to him. This is the fulfillment of all. Friends, to savor him means to bow to his authority. To savor him means that you surrender to his authority. That means you don't call the shots in your own life. Yes, you make decisions for your life, but you make every decision under his lordship, under his kingship. The Sermon on the Mount is what it looks like to savor Jesus. And it means a new obedience leading to a new way of life. Listen to how another writer put it. This is, to me, unbelievably challenging. He writes, when Jesus called his society together, Jesus gave its members a new way of life to live. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is. It is a new, glorious vision of a new way of life to live. He gave them a new way to deal with offenders by forgiving them. He gave them a new way to deal with violence by suffering. He gave them a new way to deal with money. Give it away. Share it. He gave them a new way to deal with problems of leadership. Draw on the gift of every member, even the most humble. He gave them a new way to deal with a corrupt society. Build a new society. Do you recognize that's what the church is? We are the new society, the new humanity. He gave them a new pattern of relationship between man and woman parent and child, master and slave, in which was made concrete a radical new vision of what it means to be a human person. Seeing and savoring Jesus gives us a new way of seeing everything. I want to challenge you to not see life in the old top-down way. But quoting the preacher, I don't even know, to see it in the flipped way. A new way of seeing. The Sermon on the Mount is what it looks like to savor Jesus. But lastly, the Sermon on the Mount is what it looks like to show Jesus. I alluded earlier to John Stott's commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. 
and he captures what the church obeying, living out this glorious vision looks like. He writes, Jesus did not give us an academic treatise calculated merely to stimulate the mind. I believe he meant his Sermon on the Mount to be obeyed. Now let me remind you once again, this is not obey to get in. This is not obey to get life. He's speaking to his disciples, to those who already by grace, what does Ephesians 2.8 say? By grace you've been saved through faith, this not of yourself. Jesus is now giving a glorious vision of what the Christian life looks like. And his intention here is for this to be carried out, to be obeyed. Continuing, Stott says, indeed, if the church realistically accepted his standards and values as here set forth and lived by them, it would be the alternative society he always intended it to be and would offer to the world an authentic Christian counterculture. And let me tell you something. The world today needs an authentic counterculture. The world that we live in, the secular culture that we live in, needs to be shown an attractive alternative. Stott says too often what the world sees in the church is not counterculture, but conformism. Not a new society which embodies their ideals, but another version of the old society, not life, but death. He writes, it's urgent that we feel the greatness of this tragedy. For insofar as the church is conformed to the world and the two communities appear to the onlooker to be merely two versions of the same thing, the church is contradicting its true identity. Stott writes, no comment could be more hurtful to the Christian than the words, you are no different than anybody else. For the essential theme of the whole Bible from beginning to end is that God's historical purpose is to call out a people for himself, that this people is a holy people set apart from the world to belong to him, to obey him, to reflect him, to mirror him, and that its vocation is to be true to its identity. That is to be holy or different in all its outlook and behavior. And friends, do you know that's why Jesus died? He died to reconcile you to God so that you could be called out and set apart as holy to be his mirror image on the earth to reflect to the world what God looks like, what God's values are, what God's heart's like, what God's personality is like, what God's agenda is like, what God's purpose is like. So there is no more damaging and hurtful thing than for somebody to say, there's no difference between the Christian and non-Christian. They both judge. They both are bitter. They're both just as anxious. They both don't forgive. They both are greedy with money. They both don't care about justice. They don't. Jesus is putting before us a glorious vision of what a people holy unto the Lord set apart. The entire meaning of a covenant relationship is that you are God's treasured possession. Do you believe that? The church, and let me share one more thing. This is not meant to be obeyed in isolation. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And what is the church? It's a community, a family of disciples. This is meant to be lived in community, in family, helping each other live out this vision, calling each other to this vision, presenting, praying, challenging, pleading, sweating with each other for this vision. Stott says, and I think I could challenge you to memorize this verse. It's only five words. I think we could handle memorizing a verse of scripture that's five, five words. I have to count them again. Matthew 6, 8, he says, is the absolute center of the sermon. And the words say, do not be like them. 
In everything he's doing, he's beginning the sermon contrasting character. He moves on to talk about influence with being salt and light. He then talks about relationships. In a series of antitheses, he's going to talk about how we relate in things like to our brother and reconciliation and keeping of oaths and the honesty of our word and loving our enemies and marriage and divorce and difficult issues but practical issues. In chapter 6, he talks about our worship life and our devotional life till he gets very much at verse 8, the center of the sermon. Do not be like them. And then he moves on to offer a contrasting lifestyle. And what is that lifestyle? It's the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer becomes the pattern for our Christian life. Hallowing the name of God, longing for the kingdom of God, being committed to the kingdom of God by doing his will on earth as it is in heaven. Living a life of grace, grace being the very central motif of our life where we're forgiving others as we have been forgiven. Does forgiveness impact your life? Depending on the Lord for your daily sustenance. Seeking his provision in all things and asking him to continue to protect you from temptation. The center of of that life. Disciples who see Jesus are disciples who savor Jesus, and disciples who see and savor Jesus together in community can't help but be disciples who show Jesus to the world. Let's pray. Father, may we be fully persuaded of this glorious vision that you have given to us this glorious vision of what the kingdom life is all about. And it's all about Jesus, seeing him, savoring him, and showing him. Father, I do pray now, as we come to your table, that you would feed us with Jesus. We thank you for this sacrament. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen.